The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. That's when we arrive at Genesis chapter 33, verse 1, our text for today. It says this, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. The time has come. But before we see the results of this reunion, let's pray and ask God to work in our hearts this morning. God, I thank you that as we come to your word, we can know that this is not merely a story. It's not even merely just a historical event. Although those things are true, it is a real historical event. Beyond that, Lord, we know that this is your word that reveals your character. And from it, we can discern who you are. God, I pray that today as I preach these words, that I would not stand here alone or in my own strength, that you would give me power and clarity and wisdom as I proclaim these words to the people. God, I ask that you would please also work in the hearing of those who are here. Bring dead souls to life and bring living souls to fervor, that we might run with zeal after Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our outline today is going to be very simple. It's going to be two very short points that sandwich one central large point. Point number one, the new man. Point number two, reconciliation. That'll be our big point for the day. And point number three, the old man. Our first point, very simply, is the new man. We see last week that God had an encounter with Jacob. Jacob experienced God in a unique way, and Jacob comes away a new person. God has just given him a new name. He is now Israel. And this change is more than just a cosmetic pseudonym. It's more than just a name shift here. Jacob is going to go forth very differently than he had been acting the night before. As we saw, Jacob was acting in fear in Genesis chapter 32. Last week, Jonathan put a lot of effort into explaining to us how Jacob's actions showed that he was terrified. All of the different things that he was doing showed he could not even sleep because he was so fearful of his brother. He actually sent everyone out in front of him, making even his family a human shield to protect him. But now we see the exact opposite thing coming from Jacob. Genesis chapter 33, 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So what did he do? So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Now, as a side note, notice that Jacob is already showing extreme favoritism to Rachel and Joseph. This is an awkward situation, by all accounts. This must have been very strange and concerning for Leah and her kids. Hey, uh, we might get killed today, but if this happens, it's okay. We're going to put you here. The servants are going to be in front of you. They'll get killed first. And then, Leah, you and, you and these kids might be a little more expendable than Rachel and Joseph. You can see here this favoritism that is enacted. And if, if these people are going to come and be destroyed, Leah... You and the kids, you're going to go before Rachel and Joseph. We don't have to wait for Joseph to start having dreams for his other brothers to have reason to despise him. The wedge that would divide these brothers started long before Joseph was ever given the coat of many colors. But that's a story for next summer, so we'll get there in time. 
But for now, I want you to see how Jacob positions himself. He himself, verse 4, went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Whereas Jacob was once hiding behind his family, now he is operating as a leader of his family. He is limping and exhausted because he had no sleep that night, yet he drags himself ever closer to the man that he fully expects to kill him in cold blood. If there is still any fear in Jacob, which I'm sure there must have been internally, it doesn't come through in the text. He no longer is running from his responsibilities. He is now facing up to the consequences of his actions. Jacob, who has always been, as we've seen, so very arrogant, is now showing humility. He is going to refer to his brother in these next verses five times with the word Lord. He will refer to himself as your servant to Esau. Esau never does this in return. Esau always calls him my brother. But Jacob's statement to him shows great humility. He also bows himself low seven times. He gives a massive gift of livestock. It's clear that Jacob is no longer acting with a heart of superiority towards his brother. He is acting with great humility. A person who has truly encountered God will be like this. They will be gradually more and more humble. God and his word will consistently cause us to have a realistic view of ourselves. Not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but to consider the needs of others more significant than our own. God and his word will consistently cause us to be changed and be humbled. I love how Rocky and others in our church will often answer the question, how are you doing with the response, better than I deserve. I love that response because that heart attitude is a manifestation of what it's like to experience the true and living God. You realize that if you are experiencing life, you are better than you deserve. This leads us now to our second point, our large point of the day reconciliation. Now, Jacob and Esau had been estranged, completely estranged, not just a little battle in the family, but completely separated for fear of murder for 20 years. And now comes the moment of truth. Look at verse 4. It says, but Esau ran to meet him. Now, don't read past that too quickly. It is necessary to remind ourselves that men in this culture did not run. This is not a thing that they would do. It came, if, it's highly unusual because it carries with this, this sense of being undignified if you run. Wealthy people don't run today. You don't see Bill Gates running marathons. Why not? Wealthy people are reserved. They're proud. They stand still. They walk slowly, head and shoulders erect. You do not run. But here it says that Esau runs. Can you imagine what this must have been like? The only time that men ran in these days, especially warriors, was to run at an enemy to kill them, to run into battle. So Jacob, he's bowing low to the ground, must have at one point looked up as he raised his head, saw his massive, hairy, red brother running at him, full speed coming across the plain. He must have thought to himself, there's no way that I can escape. I can't run. There's nothing I can ever do to get away. I have to just keep going. I wonder if he prayed silently in his heart at that moment, pleading God's protection over him, just like he had the night before. But regardless of whether or not he prayed again, God heard his prayer from the night before. The red warrior that was racing towards Jacob did not have a weapon drawn. Instead, when he was being received, it wasn't 
with a spear in Jacob's gut or a knife across his neck. Jacob was instead greeted with hugs and with kisses and with tears. Follow along in the remainder of verse 4. He, Esau, embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Whatever anger Esau had harbored is now completely gone. Esau's demeanor towards Jacob had been completely changed. And they both responded, how? With tears. Maybe they were tears of lament for all the years that they had wasted. Their relationship for 20 years had been completely non-existent. Maybe on Jacob's part, they were simply just tears of relief that he didn't get killed just now. Why wasn't Esau still angry? A lot of debate about that. I assume it's because he was able to get everything that he wanted. What was the cause of his anger at his brother? What was the cause of his fury? Because he wanted power and he wanted stuff. He wanted the livestock. He wanted the birthright. He wanted everything that was left over when his father died, which, by the way, still hasn't happened at this point. And now it seems that Esau has all of that stuff. He has things and he has power. He had been angry because his father's blessing had indicated that he would have little and he would be a servant, but his wealth had increased and his power had grown with it. And he had missed out on all the spiritual promises, but those meant nothing to him. Like the wicked men in Psalm 73, God had had numbed Esau by giving him exactly what his heart wanted. By giving him outward gifts, outward blessings, but inwardly he had no concern for God. This enabled Esau, though, to go and greet his brother, having fully forgiven him. In verse 5, he asks Jacob, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Notice here the different way that Jacob speaks about his life and how Esau speaks about his. God has graciously given me these things. Then the servants drew near they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Remember, Jacob had sent a large gift of 550 animals with some servants. Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. Jacob is attempting to find favor, but notice how Esau responds in verse 9. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Notice he does not say, God has given me enough. I have enough. I've got enough stuff. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough. Thus, he urged him and he took it. Now, before moving on to point three, I want us to slow down and consider two very practical and I think vital applications from this portion of the text. First, you must be reconciled to God. The key to understanding the point of this whole text, what is it that Moses in writing this and the spirit of God working through him was trying to get to us? What does this teach us about God? To understand the point of the text, you must understand verse 10. I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. What a bizarre thing to say. What a strange thing for Jacob to declare. What does Jacob think he is doing comparing his brother's face to the face of God? Well, let's draw the parallels here. Jacob has sinned against Esau. Jacob has also sinned against God. Jacob has been estranged from Esau. 
he has also been estranged from God, separated from them both because of his wicked deeds. He has deserved retribution from Esau, and he deserves retribution from God. But remember what Jacob said last week when he encountered God. He said, Genesis 32:30, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. It was surprising to Jacob that God spared him. It was surprising to Jacob that he had encountered God, yet he had been delivered. He wrestled with God and God did not crush him. He allowed Jacob to limp away and to live out his life. And Jacob viewed this as what he refers to as deliverance. He was given mercy instead of justice. He had already experienced the mercy and kindness of God in a myriad of ways. And when he was shown the same attitude from his brother... Jacob openly makes the connection. This is what Jacob means when he compares Esau to God. Jesus also spoke about this aspect of the character of God in a short parable that Charles Dickens and Samuel Clemens both called the greatest short story that has ever been told. It is the story of the son who went to his father and demanded an inheritance. The son who came to his father and essentially said, I wish you were dead. Give me my part of the inheritance. The father gave him the inheritance So you know the story. The young man went away into a far country and he spent his wealth on what the Bible calls lavish living or reckless living in Luke chapter 15. And when he had squandered everything, he attempted to find work. But the only job he could manage to find was feeding pigs, which, by the way, is no dream job in any culture. But to a Jewish man, this was insulting. Do you have any job that I could do? Yeah, I've got a job for you. You know that animal that you think is detestable? The animal that is unclean? The animal that you are not to eat or touch or have anything to do with? Yeah, you're going to feed them. You are going to become their servant. To the Jews, pigs were unclean and not to be touched or have any association with. But when his hunger got the best of him, as he was feeding these pigs, the young man found himself sharing a trough with them, trying to choke down their slop. It was at this point that Luke 15 says, quote, he came to himself. He had a realization. He had a discovery. It says this. He said to himself, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So the young man slowly marched his way home. He was dragging his feet just like Jacob, and his father saw him when he was still a long way off. And just like Esau, that father picked up his robes, and he disgraced himself as he ran as fast as he could towards his son, and he wrapped his arms around him. Listen to what it says. And the son said to his father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and let's celebrate for this is my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You and I, we are Jacob. You and I, we are the prodigal son. We have run from God. We are in desperate need of reconciliation. The Bible calls our state alienated from God. Just as in this case with the prodigal son, we have every reason to fear that we will not be accepted as a son. 
Just as Jacob had reason to fear that his brother might attack him or kill him, we have every reason to fear. Now, just in case I have not defined to this point reconciliation well enough, let me borrow the definition from John MacArthur, who, who speaks of it this way. It says, Reconciliation is when the sinner stands before God as an enemy and then becomes a friend. Peace with God is made. That is is reconciliation. There are only two kinds of people in this world. There are enemies of God, and there are friends of God. The first are at war with God. They are running in rebellion away from His authority, while the friends of God are former rebels who have been bought and brought near as friends by the kindness of the mercy of God. Romans chapter 5, verses 8-10 through 10 explains it this way, God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Do you see what he's saying here? God has saved us from His own wrath. God has saved us from the justice that we deserve. For we were enemies. Here's the good news. God didn't just leave us in that state. He sent His own Son to run to us and to reconcile us. Jesus sought us and He bought us with His redeeming love. Consider Colossians 1, 19-22. Speaking of Jesus, it says, For in Him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to do what? To reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, making peace, that is reconciliation, by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So here's the question. Which are you? Are you God's friend? Or are you God's enemy? If you have not come to God on his terms, then you are God's enemy. If you have not humbly recognized his ultimate authority over your life, then you are his enemy. If you have not been given the gifts of faith and repentance, then you are his enemy. If you have, not, if you have made an outward profession of faith, spoken it with your words, but your heart has not changed and you still love your sin more than you love Christ, then you are God's enemy. But Jesus came to love his enemies and do good to those who hated him. He came to save sinners like you and me. He came to pay the penalty for our sin. It says at 1 Peter chapter 3, He bore our sins in His body on the tree. In a calculated and very measured way, He purposefully gathered the sins of His people, that great record of debt that we could never even imagine, and He made atonement for each one of those sins, making peace, how? By the blood of His cross. He died to cover those sins. Colossians 2 13 through 14 says it this way, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How could he do that? How could a righteous judge just say, You know what? I feel like having mercy. You go free to a criminal. 
How could he say to a murderer or a wicked individual, you know what, I'm feeling kind today, just go. He can't. He did it in a very particular manner, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. How? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That was paid for by someone. If you are his friend, your sin was paid for by Jesus. If you are his enemy, that sin will be paid for by you. If you are not in Christ, if you are his enemy today, please let me lovingly warn you. You've been given so much kindness already. God has been gracious to you to allow you to continue breathing until this point. He has shown incredible restraint in His divine forbearance as He has allowed you to run and to run and to run away from Him. But the time of patience will come to an end. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will be saved and you will no longer be an enemy but will be called a friend, even a child of God. And for those of us who have become God's friends, Let's not pretend that this is due to our own greatness. Let's not pretend that this is due to our own strength or our wisdom. Let's not pretend like we have been saved because we just were smart enough to figure this whole thing out. Just like Jacob and just like the prodigal son, we deserve the justice of God. It is as if he is running towards us. We deserve him to be carrying the sword of justice. Yet instead he has wrapped his arms around us and he has hugged us and kissed us and welcomed us as his own. So what are we to do in light of this? We are to give thanks with a grateful heart, never forgetting His mercy. So now we come to our final application of the day, our second application of reconciliation. You must be reconciled with one another. One of the distinctives of a Christian is that they forgive. Consider the words of Christ in Matthew 6.15, If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiven people forgive. It is the hallmark of a Christian. Forgiveness has two parts. The first part is just releasing the person in your heart. Releasing them from what they have done to you and letting it go. That's actually what the word, by the way, in Greek means. Forgiveness just means releasing, like opening your hand. Forgiven people will forgive from the heart. Allow me to give a couple quick examples of New Testament believers doing this, just releasing people in their heart. Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Stephen is at the brink of death. He is literally being stoned to death, being battered by these rocks that the Pharisees were throwing at him, intent on crushing the life out of him. And it is about these murderers that he utters these words of prayer. Acts seven sixty. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He releases them. We continue on. We see in the life of Paul. When he was in prison, there arose many who wanted to demean him or slander him. These are not even worldly people that you would expect to hate Paul. These are believers. And here's what it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 17, verse 8, uh, verses 17 through 18. He writes about these people. He says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. These people who are preachers of the gospel are intent on harming me. They want to hurt my reputation. They want to hurt me as a person. What then, Paul says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You know what? He's not, he's not worried about the fact that they are attacking him. He releases them. 
He did not hold it against them. He was merely thankful that their message still actually contained the true gospel. Later, towards the end of Paul's life, he was on trial before the Roman government for teaching about Jesus. This led many of his friends to run away from him in in fear. Paul spoke about his thoughts of these people in the last chapter that he ever wrote before his execution. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. Where were these people? Where are your friends, Paul? But all deserted me. What does he say to these people? May it not be charged against them. He releases them. That's the first step of reconciliation. He released them from his heart. But that's only the first step of forgiveness. The second part is to be reconciled with a person. Or as Romans 12 verse 18 puts it, If possible, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live in reconciliation with all. True Christians do not hold grudges. True Christians seek reconciliation. There are only... Two occasions, really, when reconciliation is necessary. When you've broken the relationship with someone because of your sin, or when they've broken the relationship because of their sin. So let's see how Jesus teaches us to handle both of those types of reconciliation. First, what if you're the problem? What if you are the one who sinned like Jacob? You are the one who has caused a rift in the relationship by your actions. What if you're uninterested or unwilling to go to that person that you've offended and seek reconciliation? It is to people in this very situation that Jesus said during the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24, he says these words. As an aside, before we read these words, actually, let me just note, this is still during the Old Testament form of worship. This is before Jesus said, it is finished. So functionally, the synagogue system, the temple, the sacrifices, all of these things are still in operation. So some of the particulars of the worship service that Jesus is going to mention here are not still active. They are Old Testament customs rather than the way that we worship today. But the point about reconciliation remains. Matthew 5, 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. This means that your brother is offended at you in some way because of something that you have done. Then leave your gift there before the altar and go. Get out of the temple. Get out of the synagogue. Leave that place and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It can be terrifying or awkward to admit that you've wronged someone and to seek their forgiveness. And there's no guarantee that they're going to respond like Esau. They may continue to dislike you or even hate you. But as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But what about the other side of the coin? What about if somebody sins against you? Jesus also speaks to this, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The greatest divide in need of reconciliation in the New Testament era, from a human perspective, was the divide of the Jews and the Gentiles. It was sharp, and there was nothing that we can imagine more incredible than this divide. It was It was into this broken and this racist, hateful division that Paul spoke the words we read in Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. 
This, by the way, is going to be the fundamental power for everything else he says here in this verse. For he himself is our peace. He is referring to the cross itself, the actions of Jesus and his death on the cross, as making peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we're talking now about the body of Christ. Is Christ divided? Arguing from the greater to the lesser, if there is any hostility in you towards a brother or sister in Christ, whether it is because of an offense or because of their identity, God sent his son to die in order to kill that hostility. He sent his son to die that there might be peace. If you are looking at a genuine believer and you harbor hatred in your heart towards them, what do you do? You bring it to the cross and you repent. If you have hatred in your heart, you bring it to the cross and you say, God, you have sent your son to die that this hatred might be killed. And you seek for God to change your heart. There is no place in the kingdom of God for this kind of division. There is no place in the kingdom of God for racism. There is no place in the kingdom of God for cultural superiority or for division based on political affiliation. These are some of the most deadly things that divide us within the church. Please understand that the only legitimate reason for the church to have someone separated or alienated is because of unrepentant sin which is dealt with through the process of church discipline. Otherwise, we are called to humbly and always seek reconciliation. Which, by the way, the process of church discipline is a long-form way to seek reconciliation with somebody who is running from God. When I was growing up, my brother Luke and I, we were always at odds. I couldn't tell you exactly why, but there was some genuine, real, heartfelt animosity between the two of us. We didn't really fight most of the time, we just ignored each other. We pretended like we didn't exist. He is two years younger than me, and we played in the same sports teams. We went to the same church and the same youth group, and you would think that we would just have to be together. We would have to acknowledge one another. We would be required to have some kind of relationship, but honestly, we didn't. And for the better part of four years, we basically never talked, definitely never anything beyond, hey, could you pass the milk? We were rivals in the worst kind of way, and there came a point when I was planning to move to Brazil to be a missionary. I thought I was going to move there for the rest of my life and serve the Lord on the foreign field. And as I was preparing, I realized, how can I go share with others about the reconciling power of God when I can't even reconcile with my own little brother? And by God's grace, much of that relationship was able to be restored. It It took me inviting him to go on a road trip through 23 U.S. states and four Canadian provinces. But by the end of that road trip, he had forgiven me, and I had forgiven him completely. Sin is, by the way, usually not on just one side of the equation. Earlier I said there's two reasons for this divide, either because of sin on your part or sin on their part. Usually it's both. Usually both parties are at fault, at least on some level. And you might not be able to take the estranged individual on a long road trip. You probably can't. And in most cases, that would probably be the wrong way to handle these kind of things. But you can take the first step 
in humility and obedience, seeking reconciliation. And you can pray for the Lord to give you wisdom and favor with that person, just like Jacob did with Esau. And, the, and Lord willing, God will restore the years that the locust has eaten. So let's sum all this up. Application one here, you must be reconciled to God. And if you have been reconciled to God, application two, you will pursue reconciliation with others. It is no small coincidence that this is in full alignment with the law of Christ. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, what naturally flows out of that love for God is a love for your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. So let's move now to the remainder uh, of our time here in point number three, the old man. This is the shortest of our points, but it's by no means insignificant. Verse 12, Genesis 33, verse 12. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. In other words, I'm going to get there. I'm going where you're going. I'm just going much slower. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. In other words, I'll just give you some servants. I've got 400 dudes here. They can help you out. And, and Jacob's response here is, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, he named uh, the place. The name of the place is called Succoth, which just means booths. They lived in booths. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money, the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. Now, let me explain what has just happened here. Jacob has told Esau, I am going where you're going to Seir. And then he actually goes the exact opposite direction, back towards where he had lived with Laban, an entire day's journey in the opposite direction of where he told Esau he would follow. Now, there's a significant amount of debate here about Jacob's answer to Esau. It seems like he just lies directly to his face. He indicates, I'm going to follow you, but instead he goes and builds up some booths back at Shechem. But I don't think that this is a point I really want to land on this morning because it's not what's most significant here. Let's just give Jacob the benefit of the doubt. There are some scholars who think Jacob was planning on going there. He just needed to get some time to get there. So he wasn't lying. He was just preparing for several years before actually traveling that direction. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt here. And let's just say he's not sinning when he speaks to Esau, which he probably was. But let's just say he's not. When Jacob saw the stairway to heaven, he promised God that he would return to that very place and worship God. And when God told Jacob to return, here is how he presented that request or demand in Genesis 31, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So far, he is not in the land of his fathers. That's not where Shechem is. And he is not with his kindred. 
because Esau has now gone to Seir. Just a few verses later, God would remind Jacob of his vow and indicate precisely where he should go in Genesis 31, verse 13. I am the God of what place? I am the God of Bethel, the God that you encountered at Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. So in other words, he's telling him, there is a place that you made a vow to me, I want you to go back, and it seems like God is saying, go back there. But instead of going to the land where he had grown up, instead of going to Bethel where he made the vow, he went to Shechem. Most commentators and scholars agree that this was a half-obedience. Yes, technically Abraham, his grandfather, had passed through this land. He had made footprints in it. He had erected an altar at a tree there. But it was not exactly what God had commanded him to do. We have a saying in our home that my wife picked up somewhere along the way. We use this all the time. We tell our kids that you must obey all the way, right away, with joyfulness. We say this because partial obedience is disobedience, and delayed obedience is disobedience, and obedience with grumbling or a bad attitude is disobedience. And it seems that just as Jacob has taken two steps forward, he now takes one step back. This is not only true geographically. He moves close to Bethel, and then he backs away. It is also true in a spiritual sense. Sin always has consequences. He has now obeyed God halfway. I'm going to the land where my grandfather once was for a very short period of time, but I'm not going to go any closer to Esau. It seems that there was still fear in his heart. Now, the reason I belabor this point so much is this. Next week's sermon will not make sense to you at all unless you first understand that Jacob's, Jacob failed to go to the place where the Lord had told him to go. He failed to go to the place where the Lord promised to protect him. So it is in Shechem that the greatest tragedy of Jacob's life will ever occur. I encourage you to read ahead this coming week, chapter 34, as we prepare our hearts for next Sunday's gathering. It is a tough text, so I have given it to Jacob. But for now, I want to simply close by saying, do not take the commands of the Lord lightly. It seems that Jacob did. Shechem seemed like a great, safe, reasonable place to purchase some property and to live. But his disobedience would cause Jacob to become a stench to the Canaanites. And for all the wrong reasons. It would lead to the death of many people. And it would lead even to the defiling of his only daughter. The Lord has given us his word, which is designed in part to help lead us away from the snares and evils of this world. Let us agree with the psalmist who said in Psalm 119, 67 through 72, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Do you see what he's saying? Not following your word leads to affliction. You are good and you do good. That's one of my favorite definitions of God. Teach me your statutes. In other words, the statutes, the commands of the Lord are based on his perfect character. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Is God's worth, God's word worth that to you? Do you see it as valuable or do you read it and say, that's a great suggestion. I'll kind of do my own thing here. 
partial obedience is disobedience. So let's seek to honor God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the example of Jacob so that we can see what it looks like for us to have reconciliation with one another, but much more importantly, to be reconciled to God. Lord, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it is the mission of the church to reconcile the wor- world to you, that we are ambassadors carrying the message of reconciliation. God, I pray that you would help us to proclaim that faithfully and well, that we would delight in the fact that we have been reconciled and that we would be reconciled to one another. Lord, may there be no division in our church, but only unity. May we have peace with our brothers and sisters in other bodies of Christ, uh, local bodies of Christ as well. And Lord, I pray that you would also help us to have peace with those who are not part of the church. Lord, with those who are in our families, with whom we are estranged, those who we have a difficult time getting along with, those who are challenging for us to to have peace with, Lord, I pray that you would please help us to reconcile in our relationships. Lord, I pray that you would give us the power and strength to do that because of what you have done for us in the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. At this time, Jake's going to come forward and help us out with the announcements. You'll look in your bulletins.